You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Zach Meredith, uh, and I'm the youth director uh, here uh, at City Church. I'm excited to be here today as we're going to continue to walk through the Bible in one year going from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And personally, this has been like really beneficial for me. It's been really helpful for me to spend time in books that maybe I wouldn't spend as much time in normally. I know it's been uh, beneficial for us as a church, right? Anytime that we get to go into God's Word together, that's a good thing. And then speaking uh, on behalf of the youth ministry, it's been an unbelievable discipleship experience for our youth students. Uh, We've been following along on Wednesday nights, just like we do Sunday morning, and there's been great conversation, great discipleship happening Um, and uh, we've seen a lot of fruit from that, which we praise the Lord for. We see our students are excited to bring the Bible, to read the Bible. I tell them, hey, we're Bible-believing people. We're Bible-reading people, so we should be Bible-bringing people, and we're going to do it here. It's kind of corny, but it's it's okay. It's whatever, Uh, but we do it at youth every Wednesday before we start is if you brought your Bible, go ahead and put it in the air. There you go. Wave it like you just don't care. Don't wave it too hard, but yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And keep them in the air. Keep them in the air. And if you read your Bible, but you don't have it this week, but you read it, you can put your hand in the air too. Include you guys. That's awesome. That's super encouraging. That is why we do what we do. Uh, That's why we're doing Bible in a year to get into God's Word. So this morning, we're continuing on in the Old Testament, looking at both both First and Second Chronicles. Uh, that's two books, 65 chapters, 1,764 verses. So how it's going to work is we'll go about an hour in First Chronicles, five-minute break, hour Second Chronicles, get out of here by three. So um, I'm kidding, kind of. But no, we're going to go through this. It's going to be great. But oftentimes when we read through the Bible, maybe we start in Genesis, that this year we're going to read all the way through the Bible, we get to First and Second Chronicles, And pretty early on, we see that a lot of the stories that we're reading, the content in the books is repeated. Uh, Sometimes it's similar, sometimes it's the exact same that we see in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. And we have this tendency to think to ourselves, man, I already read this a few pages ago. I'm just going to flip. I'm going to continue on to Ezra. I've already read all this stuff. I'm not going to miss anything. But after reading these two books and really studying them, I can assure you that this would be a big mistake. Why? Well, because First and Second Chronicles, they're chocked full of examples of God working in the lives of His people, of the Israelites. It's stories about God continuing to fulfill His covenant and promises that He'd made to the Israelites. And ultimately, Chronicles points to a coming King, Jesus, that will save and redeem God's people. So quick recap, where are we in the storyline of the Israelites in the Old Testament, okay? We've been following this group of people called the Israelites, right? Those are God's chosen people. We've seen them enslaved in Egypt, and then God raises up Moses, and they bring them out of Egypt in the Exodus. We've seen them wander through the desert, seen them settle into a land promised by God, build a grand kingdom led by kings such as Saul, David, Solomon. Then last week, we saw their king fracture, or their, their kingdom fracture, and split, and both fall to foreign nations and go under exile. So to pick up where we left off last week in the timeline, we're actually, it's going to sound funny, but we're going to go to the very end of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, to kind of figure out what's going on. So 2 Chronicles 36 sets the stage of, you know, the purpose of why the chronicler wrote Chronicles, and what's going on, and who the audience is, and it's titled The Decree of Cyrus, and 
Second Chronicles 36, verse 22 says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word that the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah, so in order to fulfill God's word, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and also to put in writing, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord, the God of the heavens has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go and may the Lord his God be with him. So we see this small group of Israelites that are in exile are allowed to return back to their home in Jerusalem and start to rebuild. In the book of Chronicles, in the original Hebrew Bible, it was only one book, it was called Chronicles, and it was at the very end of the Old Testament and was written a hundred years after these people left exile to go back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding. And so these two books are uh, written and they are supposed to remind, that these, remind these Israelites from exile to connect, to reconnect with their identity as the people of God. So the, chroniclers, uh, the chronicler answers the questions, well, what do we do now that we're back from exile and we're starting to rebuild our home? Like, what do we do? All right, because the previous generation, obviously, their failure to uphold the law of God is what led to exile. So how do we not repeat these same mistakes? And so this work of First and Second Chronicles answers some very important questions for the original audience. Do they fit into God's plan still? Were the promises of God still applicable to them? I mean, they just came out of exile. What lessons from the past can we learn to keep from making the same mistakes? So the author answers these questions by compiling this highly selective religious history. I mean, think about it. The nation of Israel has been put through the ringer. And if we put ourselves in their shoes, like, think about it. A once mighty nation under David, a once prosperous nation under Solomon, is now a nation split and is in exile. And now a small portion of them are returning home that's in shambles. It's rubble. I mean, these people must have been tired, doubtful, you know, dejected, unsure. And this is the audience who the author, the chronicler, is writing to. And we see that Chronicles is full of stories about the past that is going to point and provide hope for a future. So let's dive into these two books and when we look at the two books, we see three overarching themes that run through the books of First and Second Chronicles. We'll go into more depth into each of them, but the three are the first one is the kingship and the coming of the Messiah, this ultimate king that will come and redeem God's people. The second one is the importance and the central role of the temple for the people of God. And then the third one is God's people united as one under his rule. All three of these are all woven all throughout First and Second Chronicles, and they provide hope, not only for it, people of Israel in the 5th century B.C., but believers, for me and you right now in this day and age. And so the first theme, the kingship of the coming Messiah. We've been obviously studying First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and we've seen throughout those two books kind of this written history of the kingship of Israel, right? Both good kings and bad kings have been highlighted, but the most influential and the most written about, the most time that the author takes to talk about, are David and Solomon. And once again in Chronicles, we see their reigns as king over Israel highlighted. But one interesting characteristic that I want to talk about real quick 
um, about how the chronicler writes about them is he omits some of the sinful and moral pitfalls that both David and Solomon fall into that we read about in Kings and Samuel, right? David and Bathsheba, Solomon and his idol addiction. There's no mention of these in Chronicles. It's very interesting, but we must understand why that is. Like the author is not trying to like change history or like just erase some stuff or, you know, fake news and nothing like that. Like he knew they could go back and read about all this stuff and they probably knew all about all this stuff. But what the chronicler is giving is he's giving us a picture of one who is coming that will be greater than David, that will be greater than Solomon. Basically like, hey, these guys are really good kings. Like here are the really good qualities of them. But just wait for the perfect king who will come and rule God's people perfectly. We see Jesus reference this in Matthew 12 where he's speaking, he's teaching, and he says in 12 verse 42, the queen of the south, so the queen of Sheba, we, he's referencing, we see that in 2 Samuel, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look, something greater than Solomon is here. This is this direct reference to a greater king that is to come but then has come. Right? The author of Chronicles is trying to portray David, trying to portray Solomon as images of this future messianic king. And these, the audience, the original audience can read these stories of David from the past to sustain the hope for a future king to come. And one very uh, theologically important story that we see in, Second Chron- or in First Chronicles is the establishment of the Davidic covenant. And we see it in 1 Chronicles 17 also, and we saw it before in 2 Samuel 7, where we see God continue His covenant with His people of Israel through the line and kingship of David. And this is huge. So let's pick it up. We're going to read in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, starting in verse 7, all the way through 15. Read with me. Chapter 17, verse 7. So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have destroyed all of your enemies before you. He's reminding him of all these great things that he has done for his people. I will make a name for you like that of the greatest on earth. I will designate a place for my people, Israel, and plant them so they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people of Israel. We learned about that a few weeks ago. I will also subdue all of your enemies. And here we go. Furthermore, I declare to you that the Lord himself will build a house for you. When your time comes to be with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant, who is one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will not remove my faithful love from him as I removed it from the one who is before you, referencing Saul there. I will appoint him over my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. How awesome is that? God tells David three main things in this section of Scripture that have long-lasting implications. The first is that David is not going to build the temple for the Lord. David wants to. He goes to God saying, I want to build you this thing. Ironically, God says, you're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you, right? A dynasty for you. 
The second is that God has remained faithful to keep his earlier promises. He tells David these things that you can trust me, I've done these things for you. And then the third thing has major implications, and that is that God will build a house for David, right? God promises David that he will establish a kingdom, a throne for David's offspring. This is a major promise of the covenant, like David's heirs are going to enjoy this privileged status of God's sons, like his people. And this promise, which was originally given to Israel, we know, now leads, uh, now is concentrated in the Davidic line, which is ultimately, and we'll see, ultimately lead to Jesus, in whom the promise is finally and perfectly fulfilled. And then we can skip over to Second Chronicles in chapter 7 and see God continue in his covenant with David by reaffirming Solomon's status as God's chosen king, right? So here Solomon builds a temple. He's dedicating the temple to the Lord. And this is the Lord's response we pick up, Second Chronicles 7, verse 15. It says, my eyes will now be open, this is the Lord speaking, and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. And I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. As for you, talking to Solomon here, if you walk before me as your father David walked, doing everything I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and ordinances, I will establish your royal throne, here's the promise kept, as promised your father David, and you will never fail to have a man ruling in the house of Israel, saying, hey, do what your father David did and follow me, and I will continue my covenant. It's kind of awkward because we know what happens, right? We read about this last week. The Israelites, the original audience knew what happened, and we see this in 19. We see this big however, right? If you do these things, I will continue your line. However, verse 19, if you turn away and abandon my statutes and my commands that I have set before you, and if you go and serve other gods and bow and worship to them, Then I will uproot Israel from the soil I gave them, and this temple I have sanctified for my name I will banish from my presence, and I will make it an object of scorn and ridicule among all the people. As for this temple, which was exalted, everyone who passes by will be appalled and will say, why did the Lord do this to this land and this temple? Well, here's why. And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord of their ancestors who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They clung to other gods, and they bowed and worshiped to them and served them. And because of this, he brought all this ruin on them. The original audience of Chronicles, like, knew the outcome, knew it was going to happen. Like, they were just spent, like, 400 years in exile because of it. They knew Solomon's generation of Israelites would stray from the Lord. And this warning here that the chronicler puts in against idolatry that God said to Solomon against idolatry is a continuing theme that's really woven throughout not only the Old Testament, I mean, but in the New Testament. Jesus, Paul, Peter, other New Testament authors continue, continually refer to the Israelite struggle with idolatry as a warning sign, and an example of what not to do. I mean, look what Paul writes in his first letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 10. The heading literally says, warnings from Israel's past. 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 1, or uh, verse 1. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, the Israelites, were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, 
They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Look at verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. It's going to go list all these evil things that they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexually immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did, and they were destroyed by snakes. And then don't complain as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroyer. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. The promise is awesome. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way so that you may be able to bear it. And then he concludes in verse 14, so then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. This command, flee from idolatry, is so important that Paul once again writes it in another New Testament book. This isn't like an isolated instant to one church. It's a, a big theme throughout the New Testament as well. And he writes to the church in Rome, right, on why looking to the past, why looking to the Old Testament is essential. And I love this verse in Romans 15, 4. He says, For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance, and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. Like this verse literally tells us why we study Scripture. Instruction, hope, endurance, encouragement from the Scriptures. That's why we're doing Bible in a year. That's why in this case today we're studying First and Second Chronicles in the Old Testament. Because it can point us, sure, to good moral, correct moral living, right? Paul lays that out in chapter 10 but also brings us encouragement from the good news and through the good news of the gospel, right? The gospel encouragement of the Old Testament scriptures is there so that hope may be born in our hearts. Well, hope in what? Hope in Jesus, right? Hope in the promises of God. One of the clearest things that we see based on all of this is that a greater David is coming, a greater Solomon is coming, that God's king is coming. The second major theme that we see woven throughout these two books, and hugely in Second Chronicles, is the importance and central role of the temple. Right, we see a very, very strong emphasis on the temple. And we know if we continue on reading, which we will, in Ezra and Nehemiah, one of the first things that the Israelites do when they enter Jerusalem is they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the walls. Because during this time of the Israelites, the temple was God's dwelling place. That's where he communed with his people. And so when the Israelites come back from exile, they're faced with some tough questions. First of all, we don't have a king who's going to rule us. And second of all, like, where's God going to dwell? Because the temple is destroyed. And because of these uncertainties, the chronicler throughout the books shows a very strong emphasis on the importance of the temple and its place with God's people. Right, the temple is central for all of Israel. 
Their life in a very real way is centered on God's community with them through the temple. And although we know David wasn't allowed by God to build his temple, we know that David all but does build the temple, right? The latter half of 1 Chronicles tells of intense, detailed temple preparation that David instructs the Israelites to follow. He's like getting all the ducks in a row for Solomon to just be able to come in and build God's temple. But we can see in 1 Chronicles 22 how serious David takes building the temple and the role of the temple. We read in 1 Chronicles 22, 17 through 19, it says, Then David ordered all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon. He says, The Lord your God is with you, isn't he? And hasn't he given you rest on every side, protection? For he has handed the land's inhabitants over to me, and the land has been subdued before the Lord and his people. Right? Because of all this, God has provided for us. He's protected us. I was going to say, here's our response to that. Now, because of that, determine in your mind and heart to seek the Lord, your God. Get started building the Lord God's sanctuary so that you may bring the ark of the Lord's covenant and the holy articles of God to the temple that is to be built for the name of the Lord. It's such a central theme in Second Chronicles and First Chronicles on the importance of the temple for the Israelites to commune with God. We can also look at the very first verse, right, and the very last verse of Second Chronicles and see two things, the, important, or the importance of number one, the temple and God dwelling among his people, and number two, the chronicler's intention of reassuring these post-exile Israelites that God is still with them. And so Second Chronicles 1.1, first verse, right off the rip, says the son, or Solomon, son of David, strengthened his hold on his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and highly exalted. And then we skip all the way to the last verse of Second Chronicles, which we read, but I'll read it again. It says, Second uh, Chronicles 36, 23, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord his God be with him. Again, after hundreds of years in exile, God was still with them. This is a wonderful truth that we find over and over again in Chronicles. God with his people, dwelling with them in the temple, promising to dwell with them once more out of exile. It's a very, it's a very clear call for the people to remember the importance of the temple in their lives and to rebuild the temple, and to be confident that God is their God, and He will always be their God, right? Their covenant with Him still holds true despite years of exile, despite these recent events. And the chronicler is imploring the Israelites, yes, it's important, rebuild the temple, and he highlights the importance of God's presence in their lives. And then finally, the third major theme that we see in Chronicles is the people of Israel united under God, uh, united as God's chosen, under God. There's a very, very strong emphasis once again in these books on the importance of God's people, the Israelites, being united and living in covenant with Him. We see the very first nine chapters of First Chronicles. The chronicler, it's a big genealogy, right? The chronicler is going to trace the lineage all the way back to Adam. This is so significant. 
And oftentimes, myself included, we look at these long lists of names and like wonder why like it's in the Bible. Like I, I know some of these words type thing. Like I can pronounce like three-fourths of them. Somebody last service was like, I was hoping you would read the genealogy. It's like we've been here for like 15 hours. But they're important. They're very, very important because what the author is doing is he's showing his audience that and proving to them that they are God's chosen, right? That they are from the line of Adam, that they are from the line of David, and they can rest in the covenant that God has made with them, right? They are his people. They are God's people, and the covenant with their ancestors, it's still real for them, and it's still true. God has remained faithful to them, and he's going, look, I can prove it. I can prove it to you. Another great thing we see in this theme is the author, the, the chronicler's use of three words together. All of Israel. All of Israel is used dozens and dozens of times throughout these two books. And it's a way to emphasize the unity that the two kingdoms find in God's covenant, right? God's covenant wasn't just applicable to the southern kingdom of Judah or the northern kingdom of Israel, but of Israel as a whole, all of Israel. So even through the splitting of the kingdoms in the years in exile, God still remains with his people. And this is really something that the chronicler knew that these post-exile Israelites really needed to hear. But what's interesting about all three of these themes that we see that we just talked about is that they're almost unanswered questions, right? I can imagine the Israelites, and we can imagine them returning from exile, and now that we're back, who's going to be our king, right? Who's going to lead us? Theme one. Now, the place that God has dwelt with us in the past is in ruins right now, so if we build it, will he commune with us in the same way, the second theme? And then finally, the kingdom of Israel has been split, We've survived separately in exile for years. Does God's covenant still hold true for the, for the Israelite people as a whole? Theme three, does it just, you know, hold true to some of us? But the three major themes, these things that we see in Chronicles, they point to unanswered questions, but they point to future promises. And they ultimately point to Jesus Christ. The answer to all three of these themes is Jesus like the chronicler this whole time is pointing to Jesus, and that's amazing. And then we see in Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Jesus comes to earth. And then get this, as Matthew 1.1 says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the king from the line of David who God promised would build his kingdom had arrived. Like Jesus, the perfect king that would perfectly redeem God's people had come. And with that, he literally dwelt among his people throughout his ministry. The implications of Jesus coming and dwelling among his people are huge, right? Jesus not only was the perfect, flawless king, but also the perfect temple. Read with me in John 2. We see this scene where Jesus enters the temple, and upon noticing that it had become a marketplace, he kind of goes ham and drives all the businessmen out and starts flipping some tables, and he's just, he's mad. And the Jewish people at the time, they, uh, verse 18, it says, so the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Why did you do, what in the world? Then Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, I love the practicality of this, this temple took 46 years to build, and you're going to raise it up in three days? 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And get this, verse 22, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the statements that Jesus had made, right? Under the old terms, uh, or under the terms of the old covenant, right? Think Israelites, think Old Testament. The temple, as we talked about, was the meeting place between a holy God and a sinful people. This was the place of sacrifice, the place for atonement of sin. But on this side of the cross, right, where Jesus is, by his sacrifice, pays for our sin, Jesus himself becomes the great meeting place between a holy God and his sinful people. He becomes the temple, the meeting place between God and his chosen. Right? Through Jesus' sacrifice and his sacrifice alone, he now enables all of his people to meet with God and to God to dwell with his people, to dwell with us Christians freely, right? God's dwelling place is now in the hearts of his people. As 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't you know, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Well, how to get there? Whom you have from God? Like, you're not your own. Well, how do we get it? It was bought at a price. So glorify your God with your body. What an amazing promise that is that we can trust in. And finally, the unity that brings us together as Christians is found at the foot of the cross. Right? It's found in the salvation given through the blood of Jesus. And this is what unites us as Christians in this room. This is what brings us together as sons and daughters of the Most High, of Jesus, Jesus as our King. Number one, Jesus as our great high priest, and then Jesus as our unifier. Like the Bible is a revelation by God of himself with the desire for us responding rightly to him. And in First and Second Chronicles, we see this wonderful theology of God, so much truth about God, his sovereignty, his mercy. And all of this, and specifically First and Second Chronicles, points to God's faithfulness. And so how do we respond to this? How do we respond to First and Second Chronicles? We put our hope in God. That was the point of the chronicler's work, right? Hey, guys, don't lose hope. Those of you who are facing opposition, sin, disappointment, like God has not given up on you, and I'm going to demonstrate that by writing this history and showing that God is a faithful God, right? And here's where we see the faithfulness of God, and we're reminded about what He is like. So we respond by putting our hope and our trust in God. Because there are still promises that God has made that haven't been fulfilled yet. Sidebar, how do we know what these promises are, right? How do we know the character of God when we read them in His Word to us, the Bible? This book isn't just about God, it's God's Word to us. So reading and studying the Scriptures is a gift that we must be vigilant in pursuing and we should do. And sidebar, but there are still promises that God has made that have not yet been fulfilled, right? We're still longing for our King to come back, to king, for our King Jesus to come back and build His kingdom. And these books of 1 and 2 Chronicles, they really give us hope, right? That God is faithful to His people. That God is faithful to the Israelites. That God is faithful to Christians today. And that once again, Jesus is going to come, and in doing so, He will be among us. 
and we will be made perfect in him. And what a wonderful thing we can hope for, we can trust in, trust that God will be faithful and bring it to completion. So as Second Chronicles ends, it really points forward, right? It's a call for God's people to look back in order to look ahead because God's faithfulness in the past has become our source of hope for the future. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you today humbled as uh, your people, and we thank you for uh, the many blessings that you have given us. We thank you for your son's work on the cross for us, God, for the salvation that comes through that. We thank you for the many promises that you are faithful to fulfill. God, we confess when we oftentimes forget to put our trust and our hope in you. So God, please tune our hearts to yours. Please forgive us when we stray. God, we praise you for who you are. We love you and we aim to glorify you in everything that we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.